Welcome back to Over Here. My name is Nick Finzer, and today I'm really excited to share a little bit of a conversation. Actually, it's all of a conversation, but the conversation, we had to cut it a little short because we had a little bit of scheduling uh, things today. And this is with a great bassist from Iowa who's now living here in New York. And we first met teaching together at the Rockport Jazz Camp, which is uh, up in Massachusetts last summer. And now he's here in New York and part of a great trio that's releasing some music here on Outside In Music. And actually that record is open for pre-order right now until the end of the first week of May. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear some of the music that these guys are making, uh, you can go to outside of music and just search for Paragon. That's the name of the trio and the page will shoot right up. Or if you're on Facebook, Instagram, I'm sure you'll find a link uh, very, very easily. So just get in touch with Emiliano if you can't and he will direct you to the right place, I am sure. So without taking too long to introduce him, I'm gonna jump right into our conversation. Please enjoy. All right, today we have Emiliano Lasansky, a fantastic bass player today here on the show. And Emiliano, thanks for being here. And Emiliano is here with us today because his trio uh, is putting out a record very, very soon. And that has two of his friends in it. That's uh, Daniel Dickinson and Connor Kent also on the record. But before we get to all of that, I'd like Emiliano to introduce himself to our audience and you know, let us know what's going on in his world and where he's from and all of this kind of great stuff. Sure. Okay, so yeah, like Nick said, my name is Emiliano Lasansky. I'm a bass player. I live in New York City. Uh, I went to the Eastman School of Music for my undergraduate degree and lived in Rochester, New York until about last summer. And then I moved down to New York City, uh, summer of 2017. And then since I've been living here, I've been playing with a lot of different great musicians here. But I ended up linking up with um, Daniel Dickinson, who I did a program at the Kennedy Center with this last year called the Betty Carter Jazz Ahead program. And uh, we knew each other through that, and Dan wanted to get together when I moved down to the city and play a bit, and he had a couple gigs lined up. And he had this friend, Connor, who's a great drummer, who um, had been living in Texas and actually ended up moving to New York around the same time as me, maybe a month or two before. And so both of us were kind of in a similar situation where we had just moved to New York and uh, we're trying to get things going. And I mean, we still are doing that, but um, you know, just trying to put ourselves out there. And Dan had these uh, gigs going, like I said. And uh, so we got together and played a bit and we really had a great time playing together. And there was a nice um, gelling between our different musical tastes and aesthetics. And um, after playing a few gigs, we realized like, oh, we should, you know, we talked about maybe making a recording of some stuff because we've been playing all original music for the most part. And uh, Dan and I had been writing some music for the group. And then Connor thought it would be great for him to write music for the group too. And so it kind of just turned into a collective trio basically, which is a nice outlet for us to all play together and play some original music that we'd been working on. And also to, you know, try to play as much as we can in the city and get ourselves out there to other folks in the jazz world in New York and really everywhere else after that, I suppose. But so yeah, that's kind of what's been going on with me and with the group. Um, although, like Nick mentioned, recently we recorded uh, an album at Big Orange Sheep, which was, what day was that? That was in February. It was yeah. <laughs> the 19th, I think, Monday. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we, we went out there and recorded. Uh, we had about 
We had seven original songs composed, and then we also recorded one free song. Um, and these are all songs that we had been playing on gigs. And one thing that was really great about this situation with our trio is that we had the uh, we had enough gig experience where we could sort of workshop these songs and kind of develop them into a more um, re uh, retrofitted arrangement for the way we liked to play them and perform them in live situations. So that was really helpful. And that basically made the group a lot sound, I would say, a lot more organic on a lot of the compositions. And also it allowed us to be a bit more streamlined when we were doing the recording in the studio because we had um, all these performances under our belt. And I'd also say that uh, some of the compositions are more specific in terms of the way they're laid out and they kind of call for you know a real specific thing throughout which is great but a lot of the other ones uh, that are on the record are more like bare i would say more bare bones sort of lead sheet style things where it's just a melody and some harmony and since the group is just saxophone bass and drums we don't really have a chordal instrument like a piano or guitar to um, fill out those harmonies we had to find you know unique ways to um let the listener, you know, bring the listener into the fold and hear those things that were happening in the composition. And um, when you have a pretty bare bones composition, like a lead sheet sort of thing, sometimes it can take a while to develop a group sound on that song or on that piece. And so we had the, and we were fortunate enough to have some gigs uh, where we could do that and put that stuff together. Um, and so that's something you'll hear on the record is uh, not only original compositions, but, you know, maybe a original way our group plays those compositions. If you maybe were to hear another saxophonist, bass player, and drummer play those compositions, even if they just had the music in front of them, they would probably have a completely different approach to them just because they haven't had the same experiences we've had in a live situation. But that's something that's really great about jazz since it's all improvised. You can really bring your personality to each thing you're playing. And so hopefully that comes across on the record. Yeah, I think I think it definitely does. And you guys had a real organic way of playing, but also very much in the moment and very well rehearsed and had the best of both worlds to me. Um, so that's that's awesome about the record. We'll come back to the record. Can we back up even a little, a little bit? bit. Could, Could you tell, tell us a little, little bit about, about where, where you grew, grew up and how you, you got, got into, into playing jazz, jazz in the first place? place? Well, I grew up in Iowa City, Iowa, which is actually where I am right now. Uh, I'm just home visiting for a few days, so kind of funny coincidence. But anyway, yeah, I grew up here in Iowa City, Iowa, and uh, I grew up playing, I started on violin, I think when I was seven or eight, and uh, I also started playing electric bass around the same time, maybe like a few months after I picked that up. Um, started playing violin through like school, you know, public school system. And that was great that we had that opportunity to do that, especially at such a young age. Um, but also growing up, I was exposed to a lot of um, 70s era jazz music, I'll say. Um, I guess a lot of people would call it like really classic fusion music because my dad was a really big fusion fan in the 70s. And he had all these CDs and records that he used to play in our house that, and we would just hear, you know, weather report, heavy weather and all these Chick Corea return to forever records and Stanley Clark records and a whole slew of things. And so th those were always kind of around the house when we were growing up. And so my brother and I growing up, we were always exposed to these things. And I remember specifically my dad, he had a, one of those disc changers in his car, multiple CD changers where he had a five different CDs. And 
each one of those CDs is like a, a classic fusion record, like like I mentioned before, like Heavy Weather. Like I think by the time I was seven, I could probably sing all the songs that were on that record, like Teen Town and Birdland and The Remark You Made and all those classic songs that you hear, you know, and everything from wrestling meets and football games to like jazz clubs, I guess. But uh, um, anyway, so on all those records, there are all these great electric bass players, and my dad was kind of a electric bass fan which is kind of a weird thing to i guess be really into but um anyway uh so i don't i don't really know if he in, well what happened was when i was about seven or eight you know my brother and i were like oh we really want to get some video games we want to you know have a good time at home when we're on the on the weekend and stuff and my parents said they wouldn't let us get any video games they didn't want us to have any video games but they said instead they would buy us each a musical instrument and we could spend our time doing that which seemed like just as much fun to me because i had no idea about any of that stuff my neither of my parents are musicians so um it seemed exciting like playing an instrument especially like an electric guitar or electric bass or something that seemed really cool so um ended up playing starting on electric bass then and i played violin and electric bass till i was probably freshman sophomore in high school and then i had been playing in orchestras in high school and junior high and all that stuff and then my high school teacher um a combination of my orchestra teacher and my band teacher who i'd been i've been playing in jazz band with both said like you know you should really learn how to play upright bass since you play electric bass so well you do it in jazz bands and stuff and you know you're playing violin in orchestra but you know, are you going to, do you really have any desire to be a professional violinist? And I think they knew I didn't really. I mean, I love playing violin, but I was not serious at it at all. I had no intention of being a professional violinist or anything like that. So, um, but I did really love bass and I loved jazz and I love, and I, at that time I'd been attending some summer camps and stuff. And I was one of the only kids that showed up with an electric bass and there's all these kids playing upright bass. And so that was, I felt like that must've been a drag for all the kids that were in my combos because I didn't have an upright. They had to listen to an electric bass on some of that stuff, which sounds kind of funny, I guess. But anyway, so around early high school, I started playing upright and, um, the teacher I studied with through basically when I started electric bass till I graduated from high school was actually a great classical bassist in Iowa and uh, still is in, um, he, you know, I ended up taking upright lessons with him too because that was just easy and it was there and I had a relation, working relationship with him already. So um, I think it was just a combination of a lot of great things that got me really interested in the music and thinking about doing it as a professional uh, and doing it as something, you know, for my life, not even necessarily thinking about it as a job really, but just as something that I had to do and, um, you know, I would feel unfulfilled if I didn't put time into it and um, you know, really devote, um, things to it. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's kind of what happened before I went to college. And then let's see, I guess, like I mentioned before, I, I was attending some summer camps and I, I attended a few different summer camps with some of the Eastman school of music faculty. And, uh, I guess by the time I was applying for schools and stuff, uh, I was interested in, I was a serious, you know, high school music student at that time. I wanted to go to a college that would challenge me and, I could work with all these, you know, teachers that I liked listening to on record, things that a lot of high school students think and want to do um, for college. So I was applying to a lot of the, you know, classic East Coast conservatory schools that everyone applies to, Eastman being one of them. And I guess as auditions sort of uh, happened and I got into a few schools and it was kind of, you know, trying to make decisions about where I wanted to go and spend four years of school. And I had worked with 
Um, like I said, a few of the professors at Eastman, including Jeff Campbell, who's the bass teacher there and who's the director of the jazz department there. He's also the director of uh, the Birch Creek Jazz Summer Camp, which is in Door County, Wisconsin. A lot of jazz musicians have attended that when they were in high school. It's still going. Great camp. And uh, so I knew Jeff through that and through doing the Eastman Summer Camp. And so, I don't know, I, I just knew the faculty there, and so it seemed like a great fit. So I ended up moving to Rochester when I was 18 and attending the Eastman School of Music for my undergraduate degree. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I guess I went from being a – high school student in Iowa to a college student in New York and now a professional musician in. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell us a little bit, what are you doing in New York? I know you've been here, you've only been here, not even a year. Yeah. And about and seven or eight Working around with who, who else are you playing with other than your trio mates? Well, I still, I'm not playing a ton yet. I'm playing a fair amount, I guess, but I've played a little bit with some of my other friends, our friends that we know through going to school at Eastman. Um, let's see. I like um, So Nick and I both actually teach at a summer camp in Rockport, Massachusetts with Alexa Tarantino, who's the director of the camp there. A lot of the other faculty members there are uh, also went to school with us in Rochester. And uh, so I played a little with Alexa and some of uh, some people I've met through her um, that I didn't necessarily go to school with. No, I wouldn't say I have. I'm really playing in a lot of other bands yet sure. um, or pr let's say like finite projects that are gigging a lot. But, you know, a lot of rehearsals and sessions and small gigs here and there where it's sometimes it's original music and sometimes it's. Um, you know, standards and standard repertoire stuff. And so, uh, the, I mean, the great thing about New York is most everybody there is, uh, you know, a really great musician and really serious about being a professional and, you know, um, doing everything they do in music at a really high level. So, um, you know, even if you're playing up, you know, a dive bar standards gig, you probably will be playing with three other musicians that are like amazing, outstanding players just because of the nature of the, you know, New York it is a New York is a major market music scene, and so there are all these great musicians everywhere trying to, you know, have professional careers and gig around and stuff like that. So, right now, I'd say I'm still in the uh, early stages of being a freelance musician in New York, but you know, it takes time and uh, takes a, a commitment to you know the music scene and to the music itself, and you know, to getting to know people and going out and seeing music and people knowing you're around and, you know, building that credibility amongst people you didn't know before you moved there and all those different things. And so I wouldn't say I've quite figured that out yet, but, you know, I'm slowly figuring it out. I'm definitely doing a lot more now than I did when I first moved to New York. So that's positive. So hopefully, you know, keeps things keep building and, you know, I keep working toward some of my goals, my long-term goals, I'll say, as a musician. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I know you're right in the thick of it. And so not necessarily to give concrete advice because, you know, you know, you've only been there for a little while, but what yeah, I don't some know. of the things that like you did to prepare yourself to move to the city? Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say on a performing level, I mean, just being a professional musician, you have to have your stuff together. You have to know, um, you know, at least the couple hundred songs that most people know if you want to play with professionals, you know, just to get your foot in the door. So just on that level, you need to have your repertoire together. You need to know, like, you know, your basic 
100, 200 standards that everybody knows. You have to know the way people like to do them. You know, you have to have your technique together. So you, you know, you're, you're not struggling. You don't want people to hear you and say, oh, like, that guy just doesn't sound like he's really played in a while. Like he's a great musician, but it just seems like he hasn't played his instrument in two weeks or something, or maybe he was having an off day, you know? So you got to address that as well. You definitely have to have your whole rig together. So, you know, like me as a bass player, you have to have, you know, you have to know how to transport your instrument from place to place. And in New York, that can be challenging. And, you know, you also have to have all of that. I mean, and all of these things are like, you have, there's so many things you have to have, in place, uh, aside from just, you know, learning all your scales and, um, having a good sound and, but, you know, at the core of it, you have to have all those fundamental things in place as well. So, um, I will, I think some of the other things I did, uh, to help prepare me were, um, before I moved to New York, trying to do as many programs as I could, like the Betty Carter jazz head program I mentioned before, or like teaching at summer programs or going out, you know, when people were in town that didn't live there or just trying to make as many connections as I could. Um, so now that I'm living in New York, um, you know, I'm not relying on like the five people I know beforehand. And I have all these other connections that, you know, hopefully the more I get to know people, those will turn into, you know, more gigs or more sessions or whatever. And, um, so there's that component as well. Um, and, you know, I think another really big aspect of preparing yourself to be a professional musician in a city where there's lots of great musicians is you have to know how to act. And I don't mean like you have to change your personality. You have to be this outgoing bubbly person all the time or anything like that. Um, but you do have to know how to be, you know, nice and kind person. And you also have to know how to, you know, you don't want to say too much when you're talking to people that you don't know very well. You don't want to overwhelm them with, you know, all your information, you know, you don't want to show off, you know, you want to be a humble musician and you want, when you meet people and work with people, you want them to feel comfortable around you the same way you want to feel comfortable around them. And nowadays, I mean, so much, so much of the way people get gigs or work are based around who's their, not necessarily who's their friends, but who do they know that, um, they get along with and are great players in a place like New York. I mean, there are so many great bass players. There are so many great trombone players. There are so many great players on every instrument. So you need to have those other things as well, like that will kind of keep you at the front of people's mind when they're thinking of who they could call to play, you know, X type of situation. Um, and I mean, I know plenty of people, I think we all do that, you know, oh, I don't want to call that guy because he's just in my face all the time. Or I don't want to call that guy because I know he's going to be late, you know. So even just basic things like being on time, I mean, go a really long way. Uh, they can really set you apart in a place where everybody knows how to play their instrument really well. So, I mean, I think if you're serious about being a professional and working in a professional environment, you have to approach all the aspects of your, um, I guess you could say, career that way. Um so, yeah, I, I yeah, mean, no, I can great, say great a lot advice. of specifics, but, um, you know, I mean, just being a good, you know, being a good person, really, I think at the end of the day is the most you can do, um, you know, to try to meet people and just put yourself out there and get things going. So Totally. So let's turn our attention now kind of back to the record and some of the compositions. I know you touched on it a little bit, talking about trying to make different types of tunes and different types mm -hmm, of orchestrations. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. 
what were some of the influences that you guys drew on to try to create some of those different textures, those different orchestrations within the yeah, trio? Absolutely. Well, I don't want to speak too much for Dan or Connor's compositions because I'm sure they'll have plenty to say about that. I guess I'll start with my compositions. Please. Um, I have three compositions on the record. Um, let's see. Well, one of them is more of a bare bones sort of lead sheet style uh, composition called Vanta Black. And one day I was just, you know, I mean, one day it was probably more like two in the morning. I was just like up late scrolling around on the internet, you know, just going down rabbit holes of Wikipedia pages or whatever and came across this Wikipedia page for, uh, I guess, I don't know if you would even call it a color. It's a synthetically formed color by scientists called Vanta Black. I, I don't want to try to even ex uh, explain the basic of what it is, but essentially it's uh, absolute black. It's like 99 point whatever percent black. Um, it's like the complete absence of light. And I just thought that was kind of cool. And just that was in the back of my head. And uh, we were, you know, I was, I, we had these gigs coming up, so I thought it'd be nice to write some new stuff. And I, was thinking about um, what minor keys are like really dark sounding to me. And I thought E minor sounded nice. You know, all the open strings on the bass are nice. And since I was trying to find ways to, you know, fill out the texture without a chordal instrument, I thought E minor was a nice key and it has a nice kind of dark feel to it. I mean, every key has its own, you know, uh, sensibility, I feel like. But um, so I thought E minor was cool. Um, so I, I, I was thinking about songs that I'd written and I, I hadn't really ever written a piece that was like sort of modal, I guess, like a one chord for a long time, not modal in the sense of like a bunch of chords that are unrelated by a key center, but modal in the sense like the song, so what, you know, you just have one chord for a long time and you're trying to propel interest that way. And so, uh, that's kind of the approach I took initially when I started writing the song. So I just wrote this melody over, you know, basically an E minor harmony. And uh, that's the A section of the song. That's the first of three sections of the song. And uh, then I thought, huh, like I wonder if I can go from E minor, this really dark sound, to E major, this really bright sound. Um, I guess in theory you'd call that the parallel major. Um, but really it just, it, to me it's like a, a color shift. It goes from being like a really dark sound to a really bright sound. And so, I was trying to find a way where I, you know, going from one modal area to another. So I wrote this sort of transition section, which is the bridge to that song. And then uh, I ended up coming to E major, which was the third section of that song. And uh, so I thought when I was titling the song, I thought Vanta Black, that's kind of a funny title for a song where it starts in this really dark area and then it ends in this really bright area. And then, you know, the way we play the uh, most lead sheet style songs, you know, you just play through the form strophically, you know, you keep playing through it. You play at the beginning, play, start at the beginning, play the melody, play to the end, and then you solo over the form of the song. So you keep going from this really dark place to this really bright place harmonically and then back again. And it's sort of like, I guess if, if you want to think about a funny metaphor for it, it would be like, you know, you, you're really, it's really dark, like the color Vanta Black, and then at the end where you get to E major, it's like that sort of light color, and then it goes back to dark again, so it's kind of like the absence of light in some ways, like light not escaping the black. I don't know. I thought that was kind of like a funny metaphor you could, I could explain for the structure of the song, but I mean, really, at the end of the day, I just had these simple concepts like write a modal area, and then to pick a modal area, write a nice melody over it, and then 
oh, maybe I'll try to go to the parallel major. One artist that I really like that does this a lot is uh, Fred Hirsch. In a lot of his songs, he'll start in the in a minor key and then he'll go to the parallel major or he'll even modulate to like a major key that's a really long ways away in this around the circle of fourths or fifths and it gives it a totally new feel and it kind of can pick the composition up and propel it forward and I always like the way a lot of his songs do that um, I guess a good example of it would be that song um, A Lark um, which I actually just saw him play last week at the Village Vanguard with uh, Drew Gress and Billy Hart which I never heard him play that live which was cool but um, yeah so there's a bunch of songs of his that do that and other guys like Kenny Wheeler write songs that do that and so that was just another concept and so sometimes I find when I'm writing just like a lead sheet style song where the instant it doesn't need to be instrumentation specific, you know, in terms of like, is it going to be for a trombone and a piano and a bass or instead of that, it's just going to be, it could be played by anyone, a pianist or a guitarist or a, you know, a flautist, whatever. Um, sometimes I just like to take basic concepts and try to work them through my tastes, really my compositional taste. Do I like long notes here? Do I like short notes here? Do I want to have a big range in the melody? What do I want the counterpoint to do between the bass and the melody, the bass and the melodic voice? So, um, that song is really just working out those ideas. And then I didn't really have any specific arrangement in mind. I just kind of worked the song out. And I guess the way the song is structured, it has these kind of it has these uh, parts to it where you could really arrange it in certain ways. And by playing it on gigs with, you know, a couple great musicians like Dan and Connor, they really find their own voice in this, in this song. And so um, I guess on the recording, I mean, I didn't really tell Connor any specific type of drum groove to play, but I think the melody and the counterpoint and the bass line have a specific rhythm to it. So he kind of brought his own approach to that and, um, you know, Dan found really unique ways to play melodies over the different harmonic sections of that song. So I guess, I mean, that's a lot about that song, but that's kind of the way I structured that song versus uh, there's another song I have on the record called Passing Through, um, which is actually a piece I originally wrote about a year ago when I was still living in Rochester. And I had been listening to um, a few different things. I've been listening to a lot of Bartok string quartets and um, Debussy's string quartet. And then I also had just been checking out those Ben Wendell Seasons projects that he project that he was doing the few months before they ended or something. And I like the way that in those compositions, he kind of he wrote out these kind of, they were sort of like just, I had never looked at the sheet music, but it sounded like a lot of written outlines with improvisation over it, you know? And then later on, when I saw some of the charts for it, I realized that's kind of what was going on. But um, sort of these like figures, kind of the way you'd see in classical music, like the way you would hear a broke pianist play like a figuration in their left hand or shape and then do some improvisation over it in the right hand. Some people might call that like a fantasia or something like that. But Basically, um, I like that idea and that concept and sort of the harmonic sounds of Bartok were in my ear, I guess, at the time. And uh, so I wrote this composition that was actually written for saxophone, bass and drums because I was I did a little rehearsal with some of my friends in Rochester where I just wanted to write some original trio music and try to do it in a sort of non-traditional jazz way where it wasn't just like a melody and harmony but it was more these specifically written out parts and much more through composed and I remember when I got together with my friends and we sight read it it was just a mess I mean it sounded bad it was too hard to play and 
Um, it wasn't their fault. It was really my fault for the way I had written it and the way I had, you know, given the music and it was displayed. It just, it was a complete mess. Um, but there were some, you know, nice nuggets in there of, you know, melodies and stuff. So I kind of kept that. I do this a lot. I mean, I write songs and they don't, I'll play them with people and they don't really work and then I'll put them on the shelf. And, you know, when I, sometimes I'll come back to them and say, Oh, I wonder how I can rework this or now with my experience I have now that I didn't have then. And so this composition was an example of that where we had actually decided this was like the day the day we decided to do the recording. I emailed you or something and decided we were going to do the recording. We were thinking about the structure of the album and the songs we had and maybe what we were missing. And we realized we didn't really have a ballad. We didn't really have a waltz. And not that you have to check these boxes when you're putting an album together, but we just felt like for us, it would be nice to have some things to mix it up and, um, you know, keep the interest the interest of the listener. So I thought, oh, we don't have a waltz. I, I should write a waltz or I should write something in three, not necessarily like a traditional waltz, but maybe just something in three. Um, and so I went home and I was like, you know, writing out some sketches and stuff. And I was thinking about what I had written in three already. And I remembered I had this song from the year before that never really worked, but it had some nice things in it. So I pulled it off the shelf and played through a bit of it. And I thought, oh, you know, this part does really work if I had just written it this way or this part. I really don't like this part. Like, let's scrap this. This doesn't make any sense. So I kind of like started at square one again with this song. But I had all these different um, pieces of information to draw from from the way it was previously written and wrote some new sections to it and totally restructured it. Um, but I mean, essentially to me, it's still, this, it's still a really similar, it's a, just a reworking of an old song that I wrote. But, um, when I brought it to Dan and Connor, it did take a little bit of working out, uh, to rehearse and get it together. But, um, I think that's just a fun example of the way, you know, you can always reuse your own material as a musician. You know, if you write something and it doesn't work, um, you know, it's not necessarily because what you wrote is bad. It's just, you know, maybe the way you're presenting that information to the other musicians is unclear, or maybe it's giving them an idea that giving them a different idea or interpretation than what yours is and what you want from them. Um, or maybe, you know, you just need to switch things around a little bit, move letter A to letter C, move letter C to letter B or something. Maybe that makes the song work. I mean, so I, I think a lot of times with the stuff I write, um, some things, they come out really fast and they come out, you know, like, oh, I wonder how I came up with that in like a day or, you know, a couple days or something. Other things I'll sit on my keyboard for like a few weeks or something. I'll play through them. Oh, I don't like this bar today or, oh, I really like this section. Maybe I'll repeat it today. And eventually it'll kind of over the course of a few days or a few weeks will work itself out. And some of them, you don't, you know, you just have them and you keep them, you come back to them and I know more about harmony now than I did a year ago, or I know more about writing for bass, drums, and saxophone than I did a year ago. So I could bring that experience to this composition I wrote in the past and, you know, make it something that is fun to play with my friends. And we ended up recording it. So that's how that song got on the album. Amazing. Well, yeah. man, this is like so insightful into your process and into everything that you're thinking about. And I really appreciate yeah. you sharing all that. So just before we run out of time here, um, I wanted to ask you, what is the reason that people should go and check out and maybe even pre-order your guys' record? Mm, that is a great question. Well, if you pre-order the record, you're going to be getting some things that you won't get if you just 
go on iTunes and download it or if you go on Spotify and just give it a listen. Um, you'll get some more insight into our process. I think we're each going to write some stuff about each composition, some of the stuff I was just talking about here, but you know, more, maybe more detail and more specific things. Um, so we're going to, if you get the basic, the first tier package, I'm not sure what we titled it yet. Maybe we did. I just can't remember the name of it here, but, um, I think it's $30 and it's, um, you get like extended liner notes and you'll get all these, uh, all this information basically about the way the record was put together, the way the three of us came together. And cause we're all from different places. We all have different experiences. Um, and then there's a couple other tier, uh, options where you can buy the pre-order the record and you'll get a few extra things. Um, one of them involves, uh, if you're like a musician or a music student, it involves Skype, le one free Skype lesson with one of the three of us you pick. So if you're a bass player, you can take a lesson with me for one hour for free. Or if you're a drummer, you could do one with Connor. Or if you're a reed player or even just a trombonist or a trumpet player or whatever, you could take one with Dan or you could take one with any of us. It, you know, it's really up to you. Um, so we're offering that and we're also offering a one uh, of the, sh the sheet music to one of each of our songs. So I think in that package, it's my song Vanta Black, that one I was talking about where it's modal and then it starts dark and goes bright. So you'll get a copy of that music as well, as well as a song of Dan's and a song of Connor's from the record. Um, and then if you do the other package option, I think you'll get two CDs and you'll just get more behind the scenes photos, behind the scenes writings about the record. Basically, if you're interested in the way that we put this project together, the way that we brought our background influences uh, together to make this recording, um, you'll get all of that information if you pre-order the album and you won't really have access to any of that if you just buy it after the fact. So those are some of the things we're offering and I think you know, if you if you do, uh, if you're especially if you're a student or if you're trying to become a professional musician, I think there'll be a lot of insight in some of these writings we're going to do and in the songs we're going to offer and some of the other things that you can gain, um, you know, that you won't really be able to do if you just buy the recording and listen to it. I know when I was a young musician, sometimes when I would listen to recordings, I would just, you know, I would obsess over records, but I would never have a way to ask that musician, how did they put this together? How did they do this and that? Or like, how did you get this? How did you get the drummer to play that there? I don't even know how you would like ask someone to do that. Um, you know, and if you pre-order this record, you'll get a lot of insight into the way, at least we approach this project and the way we made the group work really. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely be including some links, uh, for people to check out. So, uh, the pre-order runs until mid mid slash beginning somewhere in the beginning first week of may so if mm -hmm. it's before middle of may when you're listening to or watching this go and pre-order their new Absolutely. album kin by yes. paragon trio and uh so emiliano thanks so much for hanging Absolutely. out today appreciate it and mm -hmm. uh i know you have a lot to say so maybe we can even do a part two sometime yeah absolutely all right, man. Well, thanks so much, and I hope I have a great day and enjoy Iowa. So that's Emiliano Lasansky. Paragon is the name of the group. Kin is the name of the record, and that will all be coming out in uh, mid-2018, probably May and or June. There's going to be videos. There's going to be CDs. There's going to be everything, and these guys are offering really cool pre-order opportunities uh, if you want to take advantage of that. That is open now, and I'm really excited for these guys. Stay tuned to over here for more interviews with these guys because uh, Connor and Dan, the his trio mates, are up 
in the next few weeks. So thanks so much for being here. If you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, please do that by clicking the button below and find all the links to these guys and their project and the pre-order all in the links below. And there's more videos coming out each and every week. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, if you can, share this with just one friend because we're just getting trying to get the word out about what we're doing here at Outside in Music. So thanks for being here. Really appreciate you. My name's Nick Finzer, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>